Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In this episode of the podcast, the topic is AI talent diversity. Our guest is Tanya Mishra, founder of Sure Start, the diverse AI training platform. In this conversation, we talk about why STEM or STEAM is not enough. Pre-college and post-leakage, there is a leaky inflection point for students between 16 and 23. And what about diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI? We discuss relational proximate mentoring, fairness in algorithms, effective computing, and emerging applications in learning, factories, automotive, and healthcare. We discuss emotionally literate AI. Sure Start is a startup mentoring the next generation of AI leaders at scale. We discuss multimodal emotion recognition and how AI can change the world for the better. How to scale kindness. Tanya, how are you today? I am doing really well, and I'm very excited to be here talking to you. Yeah, this is going to be a cool discussion because you are so passionate about the future of uh, AI and the different faces of AI that we need to have in order to create a fair and interesting society in the next few years. But first off, I wanted to take a little time to to note that you have a super interesting background. You've worked at AT AT&T. You have a... PhD in AI, you have worked at Affectiva as the director of AI research there, and now you're founding your own company. What else have you done and how did you get to this date where you're basically starting a new company in AI? Was that always written in the cards, Tanya, or, or did it just happen under, you know, under influence of all these uh, experiences here? I think, no, first, it was not written in the cards. Um, I think it has always come from um, a basic sort of a principle that I've followed in my life, which is work should be fun. And I have always pursued the thing that has seemed the most interesting to me. Um, And I have the other pieces. I've never done it alone. I have always done it with a lot, a network of friends and mentors and supporters. And um, so it has been a combination of me striving. I am an unabashed striver. I am always reaching for the next thing. Um, There, (laughs) my, my husband always jokes with me that I never sit down. I'm always moving. I'm always like on to doing the next thing. Um, and yes, I have come to accept that as a part of my personality that I, I'm always looking for like the most exciting thing to do, the thing that I'm most passionate about. That is how I actually got into computing as well. And um, I mean, I got into computing much later than most people um, do now, and certainly even most people, you know, our age, um, the first time that I dealt with computing or really computers was at the age of 20. I had not even seen a computer. That's crazy. My, many people wouldn't believe that's even possible. Yes. I, I sometimes look back and it's been about 20 years since the first time I saw a computer. Um, 
And it has been an amazing journey of going from one, you know, awesome, ambitious, crazy step to another one. But it all started when I came to the U.S. at the age of 20 and I met a computer for the first time and actually on the premises of GE. My aunt was an engineer there. And like most um, people who have new relatives who come to the U.S., you take a day off to entertain them. And day two, you're like, what am I going to do with my relative? You know, so she dragged me to work with her and she set me at a desk that was next to her. And she showed me how to turn on the computer and she showed me how to turn, bring up a terminal. Right. And I always say that was the beginning. I saw the power that computers have to connect us to help us learn, to entertain us. And back then there weren't as many cool things, but um, you know, online as there are now, but I was hooked. And I love that you said you met the computer. Yes, I always think of it that way. I met a computer. I mean, it was so life-changing, right? And uh, a few weeks later I was at university and considering, you know, what should be my major, because I actually joined a university in the U.S. as a sophomore and not as a, um, you know, freshman. So, like, in some ways, there were lots of things to figure out quickly. And my advisor, like all international students have, happened to be the uh, director of computer science at the, at the college. And she, as I was looking through this big booklet, she goes, have you considered computer science? And I looked at her as though, you know, I like, are you crazy? You know, I am not just, you know, very new to this. I'm probably in the whole school, the le least equipped to be a computer science major because I had just met a computer. And, but I, at the same time, I was so excited that once given the chance, I didn't want to sort of let it go. And so I, I must have talked her ear off about all my, you know, all the exciting things and that one could do with computers. And it's funny because she was the director of the computer science department. But what was so cool was that Professor Ann Smith that day, she took a chance on my dreams. She took a chance on my ambitions, even when I didn't even have the vocabulary to express myself appropriately in that, in the language of in technical language. And that was the beginning. And from then on, it has always been what is the most exciting thing at that at any given time that I could do the thing that I'm most passionate about. So that's how I ended up. This here. is a very good explanation of why you have founded Sure Start, which we'll we'll get to, you know, in a little while. But look, you've come quite Away, I would say, with 48 patents, having learned computer science at age whatever, 20 plus, however long it took you to learn it. Um, that is crazy. Yeah, it, it has been a journey. It has been exciting. It has been fun. It has been um, you know, challenging. And that's what makes it fun. But you think that's possible for other people too? Absolutely. It's never too late. Right. Because I think that's really the very powerful message you have here, which is, I mean, barring that you are some outlandish genius, which I think you probably also are, but you are sort of saying whether you are a genius or not, it's actually possible to start at 20 and, and become an AI scientist, for instance. 
Yes, it is possible to start at 20 and become AI scientist. And I'm hoping it's possible to start at, let's say, 40 something and become an entrepreneur. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we'll talk about that as well. Um, why don't we do this? I am interested in what AI education is. And I'm interested in what about AI is so interesting to you right now. Because there are a lot of, you know, and I've had people on the podcast talking about technical aspects of AI. I've had people talking about vertical applications in fintech or in other specific domains. But you have a passion for the phenomenon that is a little broader than that. Can you explain, maybe mirroring a little bit how you would introduce it to someone who would come to this for the first time? What is it that fascinates you and should fascinate anybody about AI right now? I think what, what I find fascinating about machine learning, about the field of artificial intelligence, um, is in some way almost its definition, right? Like we call it, like the name artificial intelligence is so audacious. We are saying we are going to build, I mean, you know, the people who coined this word, they said, you know, we're going to build machines, you know, systems, automation that can mimic human intelligence. Now, having been in the field for a long time, I can say we're a long way off from being able to fully mimic human intelligence. However, the things that we have gotten quite good at is um, developing systems that can learn specific patterns and can that, that can do it at scale and that can do it much, much faster than, you know, an individual human can. And this means, so what, what that means is that, you know, there are lots of tasks that we can get, you know, these AI models to do that leaves us free to be so much more creative, to leaves us free to be thinking about how to, how to harness its power to do things that change the world for the better. It's, you know, leaves us room for our creative, innovative thinking. And I think that's what's exciting to me um, because every single day I feel like I am seeing new and interesting and really eye-opening examples of how, um, you know, machine learning is being used. But it also leaves us with this really interesting um, responsibility of how are we, you know, how are we measuring the human impact of technologies that we are building? And more importantly, who are we including or not including in, in the journey of developing these technologies? Yeah, let's get to that because, in fact, technology for all of its wonders has historically been developed by a very small niche of people, hasn't it? They have largely been white and they have largely been, I guess, educated at the same few technical schools and they have been of a certain age. They have been of a certain socioeconomic demographic and they have been from certain countries even. What has that done to our technology, specifically to 
machine learning as, as we see it today. What, what are some of the consequences that you see in 2020 out of this kind of skewed development of a, a small percentage of the population has developed where we are today? How different would it have been if we had started with a much more equal playing field, some more women in there perhaps, some more people from... I don't know, Africa, perhaps. Like, what would the what would these technologies have looked like? Have you ever thought about that? Oh, uh, yes, yes. I have. <laughs> well, I mean, I know you have. So <laughs> we, we, I was just we're, curious to hear. We're all you... thinking about it, and actually, it's it's really exciting how you know some of these conversations were happening in small groups and by a few people, and now it the, the lid has sort of just been blown apart, and we are all discussing it. And these questions around, you know, um, gender and ethnic representation or lack thereof in technology is on the forefront of our collective minds. Um, but if you think about, I mean, I just talked about the promise of automation, the promise of AI leaving us, um, you know, time and freedom to be creative, to be innovative. Um, but the reality on the ground right now is that um, AI has not delivered on that promise. Uh, in fact, the many, many applications of AI that are around us that are being you know, marketed and sold and even being used by people continue to discriminate, penalize, and even leave out people or entire groups of people. So one example that I was just thinking about sort of in... Um, because of something I read, so one of the reports that I was reading is that uh, Black advocates are saying, you know, when you are creating these, um, you know, focus groups or study groups to study the effects of COVID vaccine, you must include, you know, in people who are Black. And you must have enough representation and you have to be thoughtful and intentional about it. And that makes a lot of sense. Because if you look at some of these, um, you know, some of the research around skin cancer. So when, um, you know, those studies were done about skin cancer detection, the population on which it was studied was largely white. So the, the thresholds that have been developed works really well for that population, but that means that it is also underserving, you know, black communities or people of color because skin cancer is going undetected in those communities. And now that we are in the middle of a pandemic and as the vaccine is being developed, we do not want to repeat those mistakes. We want to be intentional about the data sets that we are creating on which we are, you know, studying the problem, on which we are developing the parameters and the thresholds. So ultimately, you know, the, the logic or the, you know, sort of the tool that we develop for detection or evaluation is more representative and it generalizes across populations. So it's the same thing with, you know, any machine learning algorithm that we are building. You know, there's a lot of talk around the data sets from which these, you know, models are learning. But right. these data sets sort of didn't exist in a vacuum, right? People created these data sets and data sets are created by people like me. Like in my past job, a lot of my job was doing design of data collection 
How do you collect data? Who do you collect data from? At what time do you collect data? And consequently, you know, if you if that design is being done by, primarily by one kind of people, then there are going to be things in spite of their best intentions that fall in their blind spots. How bad is the situation? Do you have any statistics on on basically how unequal in terms of diversity, equity, or inclusion the situation is when it comes to AI developers today? Yes. Roughly. Like, is it is it a skew of like 90% are kind of in the same socioeconomic group or, or is it uh, a little more equal than that? So I don't really have statistics on socioeconomics. And I think those are um, perhaps a little more difficult to study um, or, or, you know, estimate, but I have some statistics around um, race and gender. So if you look at, you know, AI professors, less than 20% of AI professors are women. If you look at, you know, um, AI technologists a little more broadly, um, you know, I think less than 25% are women. And this is just around gender. If you consider race um, at the top tech firms, I mean, the number of, you know, people or employees who identify as Black or Latinx, it's in single digits and in the low single digits, bring together race and gender together, the numbers are embarrassingly small. Hmm. I mean, it's down to a percent to 3%. So that brings me to the question that I guess you are actually addressing with, with your startup. What to do about this? Because, you know, I mean, I guess the Scandinavian approach where I'm from is to mandate things, right? We mandated 50% women on boards. We haven't quite gotten to this problem, I think, yet. I, You know, I'm not there, so I'm not following the discussions. But I think they've, they've been slower to come to these kinds of, uh, you know, regulations. But short of mandating, what is the other way that you can approach this? How do you stimulate uh, a more balanced situation and for it not to take 100 years to even out? Yeah, so my approach uh, with Short Start is more of a ground-up approach because plenty of studies have shown that, you know, once again, coming from best intentions, when companies or organizations do more top-down initiatives around diversity, equity, and inclusion, they sort of fail at the individual decision-maker level where people, um, you know, individual decision makers, they usually, what I have heard people say is, yes, diversity is important, but I want the best. And I always say, it's not a but, it's an and. You, you want a diverse workforce and you're going to get the best. And really that, that, it is with that thinking that I started Sure Start. And so our approach is let's take this, you know, so-called STEM pipeline or technology pipeline and really push it back. So let's not wait for people to start applying for jobs to then ask ourselves, you know, how does person A compare with person B, even though person A might have had a lot fewer opportunities and a lot less access than person B. I'm saying, let's go meet these kids in high school. Let's introduce you know, AI training and give them this kind of support that I was very, very fortunate to receive, but do it really intentionally 
and create a, a sort of a comprehensive holistic pipeline that a student age 16 could first join the Short Start community, get the training, get the mentoring, and stay in this network of access, opportunity, and learning until they get their first job out of college at age 23. So our program is really focused on students in that 16 to 23 year old range so between high school and college. And you know we, what I find so interesting you know, about this I find approach. So about this approach. Go ahead, please. Echo. Yes. <laughs> no, no. That's great. I am hearing a little echo in I my voice. Hearing... I don't know what's going on. Could you hear this? I do not hear the echo. <sighs> I'm hoping it goes away. All right, I'm going to go ahead. It, it disappeared now. Hopefully this is good. I'm going to remember awesome. where in the tape. Um, I was just curious, you know, how do these students learn? Because, you know, traditionally, and that's what I was going to say, it's, you know, these initiatives take forever because they're like, you know, we're going to help you get to a school that has these opportunities. So, you know, you have scholarships to like Ivy League schools. Or like Ivy League schools or stuff. But this approach is much more flexible. It's micro learning. It's learning. How how long does this process take for you? And and what sort of trajectory do you uh, plan to put these students on? How quickly? How many courses? Right. So usually um, the the a program in the short start model is about five to six weeks long, and we create we have created a really um, you know, contained curated curriculum because there's almost too much information out in on the web. Like if you go and say, you know, learn machine learning, there is so much information and each course is of a different length. And we know that kids are in school. There's there's already a lot going on with their lives and a lot of learning to be done. So what we've done is create this very curated curriculum that has taken um, a introduction to machine learning and made it very bite-sized. So each day you have a small module that will take you know somewhere between 40 minutes to you know an hour and 20 minutes to do and that you are working through this module and it's almost like I will call it multi-channel. Sometimes you are reading something, sometimes you're watching a video and then sometimes, and this is really important, you are actually coding up what you have just learned either by you know watching a video or some material that you have uh, learned. And then during this process, so it's about this learning phase is two and a half to three weeks long. You are you have this curriculum and you're sort of following it through and you are doing it with a small tight group of three or four students that we you meet with every single day for about 20 minutes with now a mentor who is just two steps away from you, a graduate student who has both the AI skills that are needed to help you walk through this material, but they also have the lived experience of you know, making this transition from high school to college to graduate school. So once you're completed with that learning phase, that's when we start having some fun. That's the challenge phase. So once again, we sort of reshuffle the groups and make groups of four students once again, or maybe four or maybe five, depending on how many students we have. And now you are all together participating in a makeathon 
with, you know, real prize money at the end. And that's super motivating for students. And they have, once again, a two to two and a half week period when in teams of four, they are building a machine learning solution to a real world problem. And on the final day, showcasing it to a large virtual audience, including, you know, people who are professors, VCs, entrepreneurs. So you have an amazing audience to showcase the work that you have done. How did you develop you this develop? Uh, method? I think this method uh, for me was sort of developed very organically. I have been a technical mentor for 12 years at this point, you know, started with one student at my first job, probably in my first month at at and and sort of, you know, kind of continued the path, just accumulated more and more mentees along the way. Um, but I have always believed in this hand-to-mind connection. So you have to learn something and you have to almost immediately turn around and build something with those new skills. Mm-hmm. Because, Trond, I don't know about you, but anytime I sort of set myself on a path which says, oh, I'm going to learn this new programming language, Right. Day one and day two go really well. And day three, other priorities take over. And then, you know, suddenly, you know, five weeks have gone by and I haven't gone past module one. So I found that instead, if we have very clear deadlines, goals, deliverables, we figure out a way. It's like going on a journey. You want to go to Paris? You don't know how you're going to get there. Step one is, you know, being really passionate about getting yourself to Paris. And then you figure out the details. And the same thing was my approach with my mentees is we are really excited about hitting that end goal of creating an awesome project that we are going to shout about to everyone that we know. And then we figure out the process. We get the skills. We get the teams. We, you know, get the help. And we you know, we've achieved that goal. How many people do you think you can reach with this approach? I think that right now, our um, each of our cohorts are between 50 to 75 students. But of course, there are so many more students that we would like to reach. I mean, the number of applications we get, even you know, to, it's like five, seven times more than the number of people that we're able to accept. So we are really thinking about scaling this problem by, um, you know, including more, more mentors, like opening, really blowing this up to include a lot more people. Anybody who wants to pay it forward, who has the skills, can be a mentor. And then bringing them together with these young kids irrespective of where they are. This is a fully virtual program. So creating a virtual community that can bring together people who are really excited about learning and people who are really excited about teaching and creating a community where they can do that with intentionality and awareness. How fundamental, and and, and I guess it depends on what level, but how fundamental are AI skills to you in, in you know, in the future? And in, by the future, let's just say over the next decade or, or, or two, like the reason you're doing this is to level the playing field, but it is also to teach something you find as very fundamental in, in, in kind of in the world, in the emerging society. 
to to what extent are the things that you're teaching people becoming basically life skills versus it's just a technical skill that will give you a job? Yeah, I mean, I think that even if we like if we just consider our day each day, we are making probably, you know, thousands of decisions every single day that involve AI in some way. Meaning that they involve algorithms that you're either being subjected to or that you're actively kind of contributing to the algorithm by some something you're doing. Yes. I, I mean, I mean, both really like, you know, whether you are, you know, taking an Uber, whether you're getting online to have a conversation there on the back end, there is so much automation that is going on. There is a use of machine learning, use of estimation, use of statistical modeling that is constantly happening in order to enable us to interact with and through technology and then making decisions that have direct effects on our lives. And I think this trend is only going to continue. And I think AI, AI is the new economy. It is the new green. And but that means that it also has the potential to divide people. Basically, the people who, you know, groups of people who have the skills to participate in the new economy and the people who do not have those skills to participate in this new economy. And so consequently, you know, this divide that we already have could grow bigger. And my goal through you know, bringing this kind of training, mentoring, and amplification to young people much earlier on in their career, the goal is to enable everyone with the skills to participate in this new economy. And it's not just a financial thing. It's also, what are we building? You know, we want to build robust products that work for everyone that are equitable, that make the world better. It's kind of goes back to the theme of, you know, AI has a lot of promise, but it's incumbent upon us to help it deliver that. And that requires us to include people um, who are right now not represented in our field. How optimistic are you that it's moving in that direction? If you, if you are going to forecast the next decade, you know, Let's just say absence sure start, you know, absence something that you're doing because you're obviously very passionate and, and hopefully, you, you know, you will make a big impact here. But if you just look at the world around you and what's kind of happening on its own right now, is it going in a direction where more people would be learning these things or is it at the moment going in the wrong direction? Is Are people basically picking up these skills uh, on their own or, or are, are, are they, uh, you know, uh, do they need these kinds of new learning paths to, uh, to be able to uh, profit from, from, from AI? So Tron, the first thing, um, I think your voice was pixelating a little bit. And so I could not understand the first part of the question, but I think I, what I heard from the later part of your question was, do I think that people can learn this on their own? Um, can they develop these new learning paths, these new computational learning cultures sort of on their own? Right. right? Um, my thinking on it, and 
I think it comes both from personal experience, but also from just observation of my um, of the people I've been fortunate to mentor. Really, is that we all need a little help. Nothing big is, I mean, accomplished alone. I know that in um, in the business world, we really like to hold up those innovators, those builders, and it's like you know this person scaled this huge mountain all by himself. It's usually himself, sometimes herself. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, it um, you know it takes a community. It takes a community to build up a person, and it takes a team to accomplish large things together. Um, so I think that it is very, it kind of goes back to what I said about learning, um, you know, trying to learn a programming languages language on my own, right? Um, you know, yes, one, one day, two days, you might have a lot of self-motivation. You're like, I'm going to go figure this out, but things will get difficult. Like the, you know, concepts around machine learning, I would not say are really easy, these are difficult things and they are challenging things and they are hard to do by yourself. All of us, you know, especially in this virtual world, we are realizing how much other humans matter. And um, so I think that learning on your own is difficult. Can it be done? Sure. But can everyone do it? I don't think so. Let's learn together. Let's grow together. And so I think in my opinion, it's that this mentoring piece that I've mentioned a few times is actually really crucial to my approach um, and short and what I'm trying to model in short start because that was my lived experience. I honestly do not know that I would be sitting here talking to you about AI or having had the opportunity to contribute to the field of AI had I not had a mentor at the very beginning of my educational career, you know, taking a bet on my dreams or even dreaming my dreams for me because I didn't know enough to dream them. And you know, this makes a lot of sense what you're saying, but it also flies in the face a little bit of what people generally think these days, which is all the information is out there. All I have to do is click on a YouTube video and I can learn whatever I need to do. And, you know, I think those of us who believe in this myth, I guess we're wondering and walking around in an artificial world already, right? Where we are already preconditioned. And maybe that is true for people like me and you, because we have been through so many educational paths that we have learned how to learn new things. And, you know, not that, you know, we could pick up advanced things super fast on our own always, but definitely there's a certain skill that you have uh, in terms of learning. But but it is true. What you're saying is is definitely applicable for for a big chunk of people who might just assume that it's just a click around on YouTube. But is that not going to get us there for AI? It, it's not enough to just watch, you know, Andrew Ng on you know a little uh, twenty minute. Like th that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about a much deeper level engagement in focused curriculum. Yet not going four years to, you know, to a four-year college, right? So there's somewhere, you're talking about something in between. It's not this massive lifelong commitment you're talking about. I mean, maybe you, you get carried away, but it is also not this, let's just watch a YouTube video. It is not a let's just, 
if uh, it's not let's just watch a video or you know let's walk through this material because if that that were true then all of these questions around you know we can't find enough people to hire in AI. That, that's the thing that we hear a lot these days. Why are there not enough women? People say that, you know, they can't find enough women and, you know, they can't find, you know, enough young people from communities that are currently underrepresented. And that's, I mean, we wouldn't have the problem of not being able to find people because there is so much information on the web that if all it took was watching a video or, you know, reading through a PDF, then we would have way more AI technologists than we have right now. So so this brings up the question, you know, because AI and machine learning techniques are changing very fast. So what about right now? Like what is, what are the most adjacent skills? In other words, if you were to predict which students would do really well in your course, and I'm sure you're not doing this because you want diversity, but if you were to predict, would you pick math students? Would you pick social science students, right? I mean, are there, are there very specific technical skills that makes it much, much easier? I'm assuming, for instance, that when you came to America at age 20, Mm, I didn't ask you, but I was going to guess that you had some sort of traditionally called technical background. But maybe the future of, and I know you are deeply embedded in uh, emotion AI and effective computing, maybe there are other skills from more of the traditionally kind of softer side that are equally important, you know, in the long run. What, what is what is your reflection on that? Should Should a student kind of not go to your course because they are in psychology or would you say that's not relevant? We need people of all backgrounds. I think uh, there are two things I look for most in people. Um, and one of them is engagement. How badly do you want to do something? And I think that is so important. Ambition, right? If you want to do something, that is step one. You will figure out the way, right? And we won't let you figure it out all on your own. That's what we talked about, right? If you tell me, I really, really want to do this, I'm here to support you really, really do that. And so engagement. And the second thing that I really look for is something that you alluded to, is knowing how knowing how to learn, how to be successful at something. So when I have applicants who apply for this program, really those are the two things I'm looking for. I am looking for, have you been, have you been successful at anything? It does not matter. It does not have to be technical. It does not have to relate to, you know, computer science, though there are, you know, schools are doing a pretty good job now introducing computer science earlier and earlier. Uh, but I think those are, for me, it's quote unquote, the soft skills. And I, I'm not a big fan of that terminology, but it is engagement. It is drive and it's knowing how to be successful. If you know how to be successful at music, you can apply those skills at being successful at machine learning. I'm so glad you said that. By the way, I, I actually shouldn't have even used the term. I really detest the term soft skills. I, I mean, I have a book coming out where I completely kill that notion. We should actually not even repeat the words. It's like Voldemort to me. It really is a complete misunderstanding of of what this is all about. So I'm so glad you said that and pointed that out. Um, look, 
If people want to engage with this perspective that you have, uh, what is a good way, I guess, one, to sort of track what you're up to and track the field of AI? Maybe, maybe people who don't necessarily think, okay, I'm suited for a course. Maybe they are older. Maybe they don't fit into your kind of interest group. How can one engage with, uh, with what you're doing? So um, I would say there are several ways that you can engage with me. Um, you know, you can engage with me on social media, on LinkedIn, or on Twitter, or, um, you know, briefly so far on Instagram. Uh, uh, but I'm learning that that's where Gen Z hangs out is on Instagram. So I have my mentees teaching me how to be on Instagram. So that's been fun. Uh, but you can also write to us directly at info at myshortstart.com. And if you are interested in being part of this exciting journey, either as a trainee or as a mentor or as an ally or as a company, we, we need everyone. Everyone is part of this equation. Write to us and we will figure out a way to involve you. Lastly, I wanted to ask you a little bit about effective computing, because it's been such a big part of kind of the middle of your career, I guess, you know, after the sort of initial uh, steps and the, and the AT&T years that, you know, your time at MIT or around the MIT startups that you were, were working with, uh, Affectiva, what, what is effective computing and, and, and what, what was it that you were working on there? It's a very fascinating term, effective computing. Yes, affective computing has actually been part of my journey from the very beginning. Uh, my PhD work was actually developing expressive and emotional sounding uh, text-to-speech synthesis systems so that children on the autism spectrum could learn the vocal intonations, melody, rhythm that comes with you know, expressing different emotions because we often are um, not very good at stating our emotions and words, we tend to show it in our face, we tend to show it in our voice, our gestures, right? Um, so during my PhD work, that was my focus was sort of what was, how do you show emotions in voice? And then how do you write the right equations to get systems to do it? Or how do you build models that can, um, to an extent, replicate that? Then, um, you know, at, um, at AT&T, I was actually continuing the same kind of work with the focus on accessibility um, so that people who are visually impaired can get information from, from the web, from online, uh, you know, any written material, but they're listening to it. And you don't want to listen to it, you know, in a boring, you know, staccato voice. You want it to sound emotional. Um, so that was sort of the focus of my work at that time. Coming to Affectiva um, changed my focus to be much more on affective computing, but broadened the, you know, the channels that I focused on. So first it was, I was just focused on voice. Affectiva, of course, uh, started with Rosalind Picard and Ron L. Kluby's work on understanding emotions from face. So after I joined Affectiva, we actually, we worked together, I worked together with Rana and the team to kind of have a uh, multimodal 
estimation of emotions. Because when people express emotions, they don't use all the channels uh, or of information in the same way. So if I asked you to, you know, act angry right now, you would probably raise your voice. But if I asked you to act happy, you show it much more on your face. Um, if I asked you to ask, act sarcastic, your voice would go in one direction, but your face would go in the opposite direction. So, you know, emotions are so complex and so rich. And we as humans are experts at synthesizing all of these different channels of information together. We are experts, but can you please predict when the situation we are in right now? So we're having a, a podcast, but some of some of it, some some will be watching the video as well. But I'm finding that it's a challenging situation sometimes because I feel like a lot of the data is lost. And literally in our conversation today, some bits have been lost, like they have actually been lost. But uh, how much is the signal loss? Have you made a, uh, I mean, is there a way to estimate how much the signal loss is between, let's say you and I sitting face to face, talking about exactly the same thing and, you know, an average kind of video conversation where, where you have like, I guess, decent bandwidth, but, you know, with some issues, you know, in 2020, how far away are those two situations? Actually, um, I think in 2018, um, I worked with, again, one of my uh, summer trainees to uh, look at exactly this problem, that if you take away the face, right, you only have voice, how good are, you know, one, how good are humans? This is just comparing humans to humans at understanding the emotion that that the displayer was intent, intending to show. Similarly, if you take away face, how much is the information loss? And what I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but what I remember is that if you could not see someone, you actually lose more than 50% of their emotion display. Um, you know, when you lose voice, I think it's right around about 40% of the emotion display is lost. So if you can just see someone, but of course this is all very situational because um, there, there may be like, imagine you're in an office setting where all we all tend to keep our emotions either muted or pretend positive, right? So there, if some, when people express negative sentiment, it is extremely subtle. It might just be the raise of an eyebrow. Now imagine, you know, taking away, you know, video from there. You've entirely lost the fact that this other person is actually not quite pleased with whatever you're discussing. Same thing in a classroom setting, right? That's one thing that teachers are really experiencing right now is that in a classroom, a teacher's job is not just to teach, but they're constantly sort of, you know, looking at their students and trying to understand, did everyone understand? Is somebody confused? Does somebody seem really lost? And now when we have all transitioned to a virtual learning, you know, online learning uh, setup where the poor teacher has 25 little faces to keep track of, um, you know, they are not always able to keep up with 
you know, was there, was there a confusion on, you know, this kid's face and is this kid not paying attention or is this kid really engaged? Um, it, it's hard to keep track of. And this is really where affective computing or emotion AI, which is a newer term that was coined at Affectiva, has really come into play because it can give that teacher almost a moment-by-moment analysis of the emotional engagement that the child has with the material that she might be presenting. You know, Tanya, when you present it this way, I really see why you need to build a Sure Start platform to correct some of this, because we have all experienced in a period of 11 months, 12 months almost, how important these things are just because we have been forced to. But on the other hand, what were all the developers doing last decade when they were developing these video technologies, right? No one was thinking about this. It seems so obvious to me. And and maybe it was obvious to you for a decade that this would have to be worked on. Yet the number of developers who were working on effective computing when you got your PhD must have been in the like in the dozens, literally, around the world, right? Or at least, you know, very, very few. This yeah, is crazy. I absolutely, I, I, I think it's very positive that the number of people who are interested, both in machine learning, but the, but also affective computing, has just grown and grown. So, like this summer, like summer of 2020, when I ran, um, you know. A program similar to what SureStart wants to do, but I was still at Affectiva, we had 52 students who were learning about affective computing, right? Um, but yes, back then, I think it is entirely possible that everyone who knew, worked on affective computing knew each other or knew of each other and probably could fit in a fairly small venue. Um, so there is a lot of work to be done, but now that we have all gone through this pandemic, and have really experienced trying to connect with each other through virtual environments, we see how much information is lost when our emotions cannot be appropriately communicated. Fantastic. This is fascinating. Tanya, I thank you so much for sharing all these uh, observations, and I wish you the very best with uh, changing the face of AI. Thank you, Trond, and it has been a fantastic hour or 40-some minutes that we spent together talking about all of these things. I agree. You have just listened to episode 74 of the Futurized podcast with host Ronana Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was AI talent diversity. In this conversation, we talk about why STEM and STEAM is not enough. We discuss the leaky inflection points for students between 16 and 23, both pre-college and post-college in terms of learning. And how about diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI? We discussed a bunch of topics, including proximate mentoring, emotionally literate AI, how AI can change the world for the better, and how to scale kindness. My takeaway is that it's high time AI becomes more diverse. By that, I mean that both the AI software and the people who create it need to be diverse. You cannot have one without the other. The challenge is enormous. How can you scale AI training to the needed level? So many young people want to learn about AI, but how? And how to do it well? At some stage, you need to figure out how to train all developers 
SureStart is in its early days, but the ambition is daunting and important. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 51 on AI for learning, episode 16 on perception AI, or episode 49, living the future of work. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.